Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. If I was rating on a scale of 0 to 10, Russia is 10. Iran is three. China is like a two mm. in terms of election interference as a way to sort of think about it. So Russia is doing the overt trolling just like they did in 2016. What Iran does different is they play to race and religious issues is the principal divides by which they try and engage Americans. Russia does that too, but Russia also plays to socioeconomic status and they play on both sides of the aisle. When you watch Iran's content, they play to racial issues. They want to stoke divides. They want to put President Trump in a very negative position by playing as if they were the Proud Boys sending that email. That's a way to provoke conflict in America that would naturally look like this is something empowered by President Trump and his comments going back a couple weeks to that debate. Russia is the threat from now to Election Day for influence. But in 2021 and beyond, it's China. It doesn't matter who wins the election. The whole idea of election interference is you got to change votes. So they're not putting out any content that Americans are grabbing that would change their perspective. China over the horizon, I think, is really just waiting to see what the outcome is because they're making a very long-term plan to substitute out America globally and substitute it with Chinese influence. It'll look a lot like Russia the closer you get to Beijing. Clint Watts is a Distinguished Research Fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute and Non-Resident Fellow at the Alliance for Securing Democracy. Clint is a former U.S. Army Infantry Officer and a former FBI Special Agent. Clint, in 2018, published a book, Messing with the Enemy, Surviving in a Social Media World of Hackers, Terrorists, Russians, and Fake News. I just sat down with Clint to talk about the security of next week's election. We'll be right back with that discussion. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. 
Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Clint, welcome to Intelligence Matters. It is great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me on. I'm a longtime listener, so thrilled to be on. Clint, this is going to be the last episode of our show that drops uh, before the election, at least as a podcast. And we wanted to focus on what foreign governments might be up to right now in terms of interfering with the election and what might be coming, both as we get closer to the election and then in the immediate aftermath of the election. And I want to get to that. But before we do that, I'd love to ask you two questions. The first is about your career. You've had an interesting career path, and I was hoping you could share that with our listeners. Sure, sure. So I started off in the Army, and uh, I was an infantry officer, went to 101st Airborne Division, went over to Korea, came back to Fort Lewis, Washington, where I was a company commander during 9-11. And I think we all thought we were going to end up going to Afghanistan initially. And then Bin Laden, you know, Operation Anaconda went down, Bin Laden slipped across the border, and we all kind of stood down. And by a complete fluke, in August 2001, I had dropped that three by five card into the mail when we used to do mail and uh, to the FBI because mm-hmm. I had a lot of friends that said, hey, you know, it takes three or four years to get into the FBI. You should do it. And a month after 9-11, October 2001, I got a call uh, by a recruiter and they wanted to know, could I take the test in two weeks? And in less than a year, by the next summer, uh, I was already at FBI Academy in 2002. I switched out of command and went through at, uh, Quantico, ended up at the FBI in Portland, Oregon, where I was a new agent and worked on a case then was known as the Portland 7 as mm-hmm. a brand new agent and was very lucky and was very dissatisfied with the FBI. I, I really miss my colleagues back in the Army uh, watching Iraq go down. And at the time, I was married to another Army officer. And I decided to leave the FBI uh, in 2003 and went to grad school and a complete weird twist of turns ended up at the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point here, uh, right across the river, actually, from where I am right now. And I was at the Combating Terrorism Center and we were doing uh, tracking of uh, foreign fighters at the time. It was kind of the start of the foreign fighter movement and watching foreign fighters on YouTube. And a guy named uh, Tom Harrington from the FBI walked in and was looking for trainers at the FBI Academy. And I did a kind of off-the-cuff briefing. And he was like, how did you know that? I said, well, I was an FBI agent less than like two years ago or two years before. And rather than walk out, he was uh, he was totally awesome to me. And was like, hey, would you work with us from, from here? And over the next, I guess it would be six to seven years, uh, I worked for the FBI from the Combating Terrorism Center and U.S. Special Operations Command. And then by 2007, I was back working for Tom at FBI headquarters and worked on his staff there. And he, he ultimately became uh, the number three under uh, Director Mueller and worked on intel reform. And when I wasn't doing that, I ran projects in between there on short contracts, um, tracking social media and terrorists. And that's really how, by 2012, uh, was the last time I was working at FBI headquarters on a contract. I had come out and was doing uh, cybersecurity research for a financial industry. And on the side, we had this project, which was tracking foreign fighters in Iraq and Syria uh, on social media. And that's how we found the Russians 
uh, heading into the election in mm. 2016 uh, as they were posing as Americans in Syria, you know, or in and around yeah. the Syria discussion. Yeah. So very weird route, but it's it's worked out somehow. <laughs> yeah, my listeners should know that the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point is, I think, the leading think tank in the world on terrorism and counterterrorism. Uh, it is a really remarkable organization and group of people, and people should go check out the website. I think it's a pretty special place. It, it was such a great experience having come out of the FBI in grad school. And we were doing declassification of all the stuff you were capturing, you know, overseas on these battlefields of Al-Qaeda documents. And it was a great sort of intersection between academia and the government and academia and, and the private sector, public sector. And we were really able to kind of do research both for the FBI and Special Operations Command concurrently. And it was just a great relationship. It, it was really one of the more remarkable times in my career, those, that three-year period there when, when I was based there. Clint, the second thing I want to ask you about before we get to the, the main discussion is about your book, published uh, two years ago now, I think, Messing with the Enemy, Surviving in a Social Media World of Hackers, Terrorists, Russians, and Fake News. Why did you write it and what are its main themes? Yeah, so I actually pitched that book uh, in 2015 after doing social media and influence for about 10 years. And I had done a lot of it at the think tank, the Foreign Policy Research Institute, and had been publishing about the Al-Qaeda and ISIS split during that time. And it was interesting. I had also done a paper for the Center for the Study of Intelligence at the CIA and had gotten it published there, which was you could see this idea of social media hurting and influence really coming together from Al-Qaeda to ISIS, but also the Arab Spring on the other side. And that's how we were tapping into the Russians over time was all of these social movements were clustering and the rules of the wisdom of the crowd, so to speak, weren't holding anymore. We, I felt as if crowds were getting dumber almost by the day as they conglomerated, you know, they kind of became these agglomerations in different countries. And we were doing a lot of survey work, different places, trying to assess Al-Qaeda and ISIS. And I wanted to write a book that showed how the Internet was changing and how it was even affecting us in the United States. And uh, I was lucky enough after I testified that uh, I got a publisher who was interested in it. And I wanted to show how phenomenon of terrorists like Al-Qaeda and ISIS related to disinformation uh, with Russia and then how it plays into our politics. And uh, I actually wrote a fiction chapter for that book, which is on Medium, because my publishers inform me you can't write a fiction chapter in the middle of a nonfiction book. Uh, but but it was basically about election 2020, which was what happens when everybody is pursuing disinformation, is pursuing some sort of duping of people, uh, trying to herd people in weird ways that they don't understand. And it feels like uh, the QAnon movement is a great example of that, you know, at this point. Yeah, the book was uh, ahead of its time. Okay, Clint, so the 2020 election and foreign interference. Maybe the place to start is with a quick review of 2016. So in broad strokes, what did the Russians do in 2016 and for what purpose? Sure. So 2016 is a great uh, sort of case study to see what lots of people are doing today. And what the Russians do, which is brilliant, was called active measures, which is to win through the force of politics rather than the politics of force, which is to find people inside your adversary that 
are sympathetic to your view or unwittingly supporting your view, and by that I mean the Russian view, and elevate them in political standing such that it creates chaos between the national security and establishment governance system internally so that you get people fighting each other. And when they fight each other, they can't essentially face off against Russia. The other thing it does in the near term is it breaks up alliances. So it's a way to break up the NATO alliance, uh, the EU. If you can break these unions into smaller pieces, Russia one-to-one is much more capable and can overpower a lot of these entities. So how do you do that? Will you go after candidates and influencers what, what's known as agents of influence. It's a confusing term oftentimes in the media um, that are people with outside voice in the target audience you're trying to influence who can sway people's perspectives on Russia. Uh, and the way they went about it was unique. They had tried to do this during the Cold War when they were in the Soviet Union, but it didn't work because if you wanted to write a com- communist newspaper inside the United States, it's very costly and very difficult to do, really hard to build uh, distribution for that. And you probably have an FBI agent chasing you down those agents trying to facilitate this. But social media totally opened the door to this where uh, Russia could set up in Russia and do influence inside the United States, not only at an extremely low cost, but with almost no consequences. And they could appear to look like and talk like Americans about American issues. And so there's really three layers to what the Russians did. First, they did the overt stuff, which we hear a lot about uh, Russia Today, Sputnik Mm -hmm. News, state-sponsored propaganda, uh, asserting their view. And it's always interesting. I'll hear people kind of kick back to, well, the U.S. does it too. I was like, no, let's think about this. This is a Russian news outlet about why America sucks, that this broadcast into America. It doesn't talk to you about Russia, right? It's very, right. Right. very different in its construct. The second part is to advance narratives into specific audience spaces. They created social media. Uh, they created websites that were what we call fringe websites. They created personas on Twitter and Facebook primarily, uh, other platforms as well, but primarily those two, which were communicating, trying to look like and talk like uh, Americans to try and convince them that this was a plausible sort of position to have in the audience space. And the third thing they did, which is really what separates them from everybody else and also was very devastating in 2016, was they hacked specific targets with the attention with the intention of grabbing uh, undisclosed information dumping it into the media cycle and then powering it through that entire media ecosystem. So this was hacking of the DNC, uh, hacking of the DCCC, and also hacking of John Podesta, uh, Colin Powell, uh, General Breedlove, several other key figures to really do four things. There's kind of four key themes in there. In the near term, it was to turn down Hillary Clinton. And that was very clear by quarter four of 2015. They were pursuing that. Um, the next was to elevate Donald Trump, and you could see that pick up steam as he grew in his his political power. The third thing was to assert that Bernie Sanders got a raw deal from the DNC, mm. and that was really that nuclear payload of information you know that got dumped in the media system. Uh, right. And then the fourth part was to say you still got to show up for Jill Stein. That was a very limited one, but when you look at a very close election, every vote counts. It was trying to turn down Democratic support. I think the last thing to think about is very important for 2020 is the 2016 campaign. The last thing they pushed for was election rigged voter fraud. By October, they were this time four years ago, they were really advancing the narrative that democracy was bankrupt, couldn't be trusted. You can't trust elected officials. And that's what we're seeing even today and hearing echoed today 
with the long run goal of destroying American democracy, or at least subverting it to such a degree that it's not a challenge to Russia. So that's great background, Clint. So I want to talk about what we've seen so far in 2020. And let me just give my listeners a little a little bit of what's been in the news the last week or so. So last month, the Office of, of the Director of National Intelligence publicly called out Russia, China, and Iran as possible threats to the election. Just last week in a joint press conference, the DNI and the Director of the FBI called out Iran and Russia for specifically getting their hands on voter registration data and for Iran using that data to send emails to Democratic voters, making those emails look like they came from a far right-wing group here in the U.S. And then there's been recent media reports just in the last few days saying that the Russians have been even more aggressive than the DNI implied in the press conference in terms of trying to get access to voting systems. So with all that, walk us through what you see foreign countries doing at this point, who's doing what and for what purpose? What's your sense? Yeah, Michael. So I'll use the same kind of framework there from 2016. And I would also say just as a high level, if I was rating on a scale of zero to 10, Russia is 10, Iran is three, China is like a two mm. in terms of election interference as a way to sort of think about it from, from our tracking the last two years. So Russia is doing the overt trolling just like they did in, in 2016. They've been harsh and very negative on Biden going all the way back to the spring of 2019. Very clear they don't want uh, former Vice President Biden or uh, Kamala Harris, for that matter. She's a member of the Senate Intelligence Committee that was on the investigation of Russia. So they're not excited about that. On the social media sort of influence level, they have been pushing very hard in 2019 and 2020, again, using troll farms and this time even trying to set up a cutout in Ghana. Uh, which was to go after the African-American and minority communities in the United States. And the good news on that front is uh, social media companies have done way better this time around. Uh, the U.S. government has done much better. There's a lot of coordination and synchronization there. So a lot of that social media influence has still been attempted by Russia, but has also been repelled to a degree. And then the third part, which is still the question mark, is uh, hacking uh, and targeting. Uh, we know the alleged hack of, or attempted hack of Burisma related to the Ukrainian conspiracy that was coming out back in January. And then what we've seen over the summer, which is several different times where uh, Russia has been noted as trying to influence against um, uh, former Vice President Biden through the Hunter Biden conspiracy, essentially, with Burisma. And that's everything from several different so-called leaks coming out of Ukraine by a guy named Derkach, who was designated at the same point um, by the Treasury this time, which I thought was uh, remarkable and significant as a agent of Russia, essentially. And then the last part, which I think is super important, and we've heard reports this week that you mentioned that Russia is hacking at state and local um, databases, photo registrations, and possibly infrastructure. And that's the last thing I think we're looking for that is an unknown, is would Russia again try to interfere in the actual conduct of the election on Election Day? And so that's a remaining and open question. Uh, there are some troubling signs, but at the same point, I have to say the U.S. government feels like, at least on the NSA Cyber Command part, they seem poised to do something, and DHS and FBI have been working really well together. So let's hope that stays that way. Iran does the same thing. They follow the same playbook, but there's one huge difference is they have no bridge into the U.S. audience space. By that, I mean Russia is engaging at three levels, uh, state to state, which is what we traditionally think of, but is really minor Instead, they are engaging at the party and people level. So they're trying to engage at a one-to-one -one level 
with people on the political polls uh, that challenge the establishment of the Democratic Party. And so when you watch how they engage, uh, if they wanted to send people to a rally, what Russia did in 2016 is they actually sent people to a rally. You know, we had a pro and anti-Islam protest arranged from Russia by Russians occur in Texas. We had a man and a woman uh, go to a cheesecake factory. The woman dressed up as Hillary Clinton and climbed in a cage there. That was all arranged by Russians. So they have their tentacles into America. They have envoys that can they can sort of lever. If you watch Iran, they're doing the same thing. They're hyper negative towards President Trump. They've been putting out social media accounts that oftentimes get caught. But at the hacking sort of influence level, we've seen they've tried to hack into the Trump organization. They've you know done sporadic attacks. And it seems like somehow they acquired voting registration, which brings us to that incident this week, which is what Iran does different is they play to race and religious issues is the principal divides by which they try and engage Americans. Uh, Russia does that too, but Russia also plays to socioeconomic status and they play on both sides of the aisle. Um, when you watch Iran's content, and that's why you could tell this is an Iranian operation this week, they play to racial issues. They want to stoke divides. They want to make uh, put President Trump in a very negative position by playing as if they were the Proud Boys sending that email. Uh, that's a way to provoke conflict in America that would naturally look like this is something empowered by President Trump and his comments going back a couple of weeks to that debate. The other thing that was very obvious right away is some of the servers that were used trace back to the Middle East, particularly Saudi. And that's a classic cyber technique used by the Iranians um, that you could see. And so when we look at what the Iranians do, they actually have a weaker position, but they're more aggressive and they'll take chances that the Russians probably wouldn't do that. You know, why pull off that sort of incitement two weeks before the election? Uh, it gets a rise in the public, but Iran also has its own processes internally where they're trying to report up their chain saying, hey, look, boss, I've done something. There's some internal pressures there as well to try and go toe to toe with the Trump administration. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. I'm going to be right back with more of a discussion with Clint Watts. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Okay, Clint, China. Yeah, so China is interesting, really interesting to me and fascinating because... Um, we could see this in 2018 that the administration is basically saying China does it too. They do it worse. You know, they're trying to keep President Trump from being reelected. So we really started tracking it significantly. And what I would say is uh, Russia is the threat from now to election day for influence. But in 2021 and beyond, it's China. It doesn't matter who wins the election. In terms of election interference, China, we've been tracking their overt propaganda. They speak remarkably little about the election. They are very negative towards President Trump, but it's just doesn't not only do they talk a lot about foreign policy and less about elections, but it doesn't travel in the U.S. audience space. Mm. The whole idea of election interference is you got to change votes. So they're not putting out any content that Americans are grabbing that would change their perspective. However, around the world right now, China is really beating up on the U.S. and advancing their vision of meritocracy over democracy their version of human rights versus the American version of human rights. Uh, 
maligning the U.S. about COVID-19 response. So we have been tied up in our own politics. We've kind of missed how China's really advanced abroad. And they do a very Russian-style election interference in Taiwan recently. Uh, They're doing some of that in Australia. So in the Pacific Rim, they look more like Russia, but vis-a-vis the U.S., uh, they do not. Their social media accounts have been out there. They they mention the election a little bit, but it's pretty spammy and they get caught quite often. And we have not seen them do hacking to influence, but there has been reports from Microsoft that uh, they hacked, uh, both tried to hack the Biden campaign and the Trump organization to a degree. And I took that to be cyber espionage. So China over the horizon, I think, is really just waiting to see what the outcome is because they're making a very long-term plan to substitute out America globally and substitute it with Chinese influence. It'll look a lot like Russia uh, the closer you get to Beijing. Clint, I want to ask you about two things that you mentioned in the last few minutes. The first is you said the the Russians are are, are trying to send some themes, push some themes at uh, African Americans, and I wonder what those themes what the, what are those themes? What are they te- What are they trying to tell them? It's really uh, double double messaging. On one sense, they were quicker in 2020 to move towards election rigging voter fraud claims around mail-in ballots. So they were very quick to that. Separately, they will push towards the U.S. and really try and emphasize, hey, uh, the U.S. is not a good place for minorities. Your rights are are not respected. And so the political left, one of their outlets that is um, not well known, um, but gets a lot of traction is called Redfish. It is a social media influence kind of uh, platform based in Berlin, run by a lot of former RT employees that pushes videos about the George Floyd protest, uh, Native Americans inside the United States. And we see them get millions uh, at times of uh, repost and shares inside the U.S. audience space. And so that's really to malign the U.S. and sort of pit Americans against each other. A key issue being uh, Blue Lives Matter versus Black Lives Matter is a way to polarize in a way that is on the political left, something that is very important to the political left and pits them against the president. And this is really interesting how this plays out because it gives them a strategic lever over time if they can grow their audience space. And that's where I think uh, has been remarkable to watch is we hear a lot about the Republican supporters of President Trump being duped, you know, going into 2016. But this time around, we've seen them do really heavy targeting of the political left inside the United States. And that's something that I worry about over time. The the younger audience doesn't have quite the understanding of how this comes through through the social media influence space. And then the other question I wanted to ask you is you said you found it very interesting and significant that Treasury was the one to designate uh, the Ukrainian official involved in the Burisma information operation. Why is that? I thought it was interesting because we tend to see that out of the State Department, you know, with sanctions or designations. Um, You will see them put forth those sanctions. And this time it didn't. It came out of Treasury, which I took to mean that there's some sort of financial connection behind the scenes or some sort of influence of Russia and Ukraine with regards to to that individual. The other part that I just thought was remarkable is it shows that the whole government is engaged to a degree. I hadn't heard anything about election defense and with respect to the Department of Treasury up until that point. Uh, And I think what's been fascinating is without a grand NSC-led plan for election defense, you've seen all the pieces, sort of the institution subsurface, executing things to help defend the election. And I don't know who would order those. I, I doubt from the White House level, somebody went to Secretary Nuchin and said, 
hey, you need to make sure these designations come out. So I thought that it was a very positive sign. Mm -hmm. It really shows that we're looking at lots of different ways to deal with malign influence around the world. And that could be something going into next year. It's a really positive sign that the government institutions uh, still perform their mission or still moving, uh, no matter what the politics are, maybe at the upper levels. So Clint, what are you most worried about between now and the election and then in the immediate aftermath of the election in terms of of, uh, foreign interference? From foreign interference, it's really the collision with domestic disinformation. And by that, I mean, Russia is the principal uh, component. They've gone all in to support uh, President Trump and would like to see a second term. And they, they don't hide this. Vladimir Putin says this very overtly. You know, he will express this. My concern is that we have such polarization at the moment and we have uh, such issues with domestic extremism that if Russia were to choose to be very aggressive, they would help amplify calls for domestic mobilizations to polling places, uh, potentially showing up to challenge uh, the authenticity of the vote. We've seen Russia do this in Montenegro, for example, uh, with a, a trial that was conducted there and connected to the GRU on election day where they tried to seize uh, a ballot box, basically. Uh, and it, that's the kind of stuff that I worry about, that if mm. Russia wants to go all the way, would they do something like that? The second part is on the digital cyber front, which is, would they still try to hammer at an election or polling place or divulge uh, voter registrations, that sort of thing, again, to confuse the public and sow doubt about the results and amplify based on what we've seen as a morass of domestic disinformation that's already out there about whether the vote is going to be authentic. And then even beyond, I'm still concerned about Russia or even Iran to a degree, uh, fomenting divides, uh, continuing the election beyond if it's contested, meaning if it's not an overwhelming victory for one candidate or the other, or uh, if President Trump were to lose, he really contested and refuses to sort of leave the White House or, you know, that it will stay. You'll see foreign manipulators move in very heavy. Russia will definitely be there instantaneously. They probably already prepped their playbooks. But I think you would see it from the political left mobilization. You'd see Iran try and piggyback in there. Although mm-hmm. their their reach is much less, it still adds to the pile of angst and, and really polarization in the country. So, Clint, how do you how do you think about how we best defend ourselves from foreign interference in our elections and in our democracy? What what should we be doing about this? Or is this just something we're going to have to learn to live with? Michael, that's a great point. It's something we'll have to learn to live with as long as political leaders who are elected officials don't unite behind the idea of stopping it. You know, what's remarkable this time, the only the only sort of node in the system that isn't really working well in terms of election defense is Capitol Hill and the White House this time. Despite, you know, all of our concerns, and I've been very harsh at times, Social media companies have done pretty well. When they've got notifications, they've done takedowns. And now there's a debate about maybe with this New York Post story and Giuliani, you know, two weeks ago, they took them down too quick, you know, without having sufficient evidence, even though they're trying to do election defense. So that just shows that that part of the system has gotten much better. Not perfect, but it's better. Also on the government side, it's remarkable to watch Director Ray, who is uh, President Trump's appointee, uh, going out with... Chris Krebs of uh, CISA, DHS, that protects the election infrastructure, and General Nakasone, they, they are working essentially together. And I think that's a positive sign for the public. Mm-hmm. The one weakness is the legislation across the board. 
I've testified four or five times now, you know, since 2017. And no, nothing has changed from the regulatory legislative angle. Honest ASNAC is still not there, which is why you get this confusion between Zuckerberg and Jack, right, at Twitter and Facebook. Like, do we do mm-hmm. political ads or not? Because they will probably police whatever they're told to police, and no one's told them what they should police. Separately is uh, election integrity really comes down to will our elected officials and the candidates and campaigns take foreign interference and help? And this time, we've got several examples of where a Russian-designated agent by Treasury is sending stuff straight to Capitol Hill. We see them tagging U.S. elected officials on Twitter. Um, We see their social media content being amplified from the White House. That is troubling, right? We can't can't stop uh, election interference unless the elected officials, you know, are on board with saying uh, anything that we're doing is going to be American-made and we're not going to take foreign assistance. So, Clint, I want to ask you a couple of questions about two other issues that you write about from time to time. The first is domestic terrorism. And I want to ask you, how serious a threat does it, does it come from both the far right and far left or just one of those? How do you think about that issue? Yeah, it's, uh, I was lucky enough when I was in Portland as a brand new agent that we had a domestic terrorism and international terrorism teams, you know, squads in the same office in a town that had flavors of both and Portland being, you know, the idea of Antifa. So when I I look at how it's shaken out, you could see this uh, pendulum swing from international to domestic terrorism coming back to the States by about 2010 to 12. And by 14 and 15, I was already at terrorism conferences inside the U S working with law enforcement. And we were all more worried about domestic than international at that point. Sure, uh, a lot of jurisdictions, particularly large cities, worried about the one or two ISIS recruits, you know, recruited from afar, sort of remotely. But you could see this trend towards white supremacy picking up very, uh, very heatedly. And that was under the the term of Barack Obama, an African-American man. You could see this picking up, this rhetoric. When that comes in and piles on with ideas of election rigging and voter fraud, for example, or that you can't trust elected leaders and institutions, that really starts to overlap and blend uh, in the anti-government space as well. And beyond that, we had a huge uptick in really misogynist uh, extremism with incel, you know, many of these cases over the last few years. And when you go to the social media space, they all overlap. It's very hard to parse them. And so uh, when we worked on Al-Qaeda and ISIS, it was it was this network, they were recruiting, they were trying to grow and build, and it was you know, kind of command both top down and bottom up. This has been fascinating to watch this sort of grassroots connection of extremism that is not that different from the way ISIS formed. Meaning that if you were in the white supremacist extremist space now, a shooting in New Zealand that we saw at a mosque, one of the most tragic incidents been out there, was amplified onto white supremacist and other extremist group platforms around the world almost instantaneously. You know, the social media companies are trying to police it. And I, you could see them go from ones and twos to forming into groups like Adam Waffen or The Base. And mm-hmm. when we talk about The Base now, it's remarkable that, you know, The Guardian reports that the leader of The Base, while he's from New Jersey, resides in St. Petersburg, Russia. And so by and large, I would say right to left. Yes, there is some extremism on the left, but it's pretty isolated. Uh, and it tends to not be the mass shooting 
uh, organized violence that we saw surface two weeks ago with the uh, Wolverine militia guys who were talking about kidnapping Governor Whitman. And mm-hmm. I think the other part to add is domestic extremism tends to peak in election years because tensions are high and hopes are up. And so this will be the big threat. And if I had to put uh, a, a scale, just kind of like I did on Russia or on China, if it was international terrorism to domestic, I would say it's three to 10, you know, 10 for domestic right now. I've never seen it so high in, in my time working in this field. And I would also say from political right to political left, it's, it's, it's a nine or a 10 on the political right. And it's a three, you know, on the political left and isolated to certain extremes. The other part that I, th- I think we should think about kind of is how all these groups are coming together over time. And so they don't physically know each other and they, they are almost uh, colliding from political left to political right at different times. Does the FBI have the resources it needs to deal with this problem? It is confusing to tell, uh, partly because I feel like Director Ray can't be too open about the threat without colliding with the White House, you know, to a degree. Right. Um, and I testified last year to, to the Senate, and it was interesting. It was very hard to convince certain senators that the extremism on the political right was at the scale that it was at. And that we needed to start thinking about terrorist organization designation the way we did with ISIS and Al Qaeda so that uh, we can explore these leads on social media. Right now, domestic terrorism is still in the construct of one case at a time. And it's kind of up to agents mm-hmm. to connect it together. Now, I know they've mm-hmm. done some better organization. You can tell from the disruptions they've had the last two years, they're doing way better on domestic terrorism. But I do worry that the resources aren't there to the same degree. And because we don't define it by groups uh, very well, um, it really becomes this sort of, does everybody know what's going on? We don't have that common situational awareness that, like Michael, you and I would have had during the global war on terror, right, where we were always trying to integrate and network with each other. Really comes down to personal relationships, I imagine, inside the FBI on how to handle this stuff. So, Clint, last question which we've talked about a little bit already, is international terrorism. This is obviously something you followed for much of your career. How do you assess the threat to U.S. interests today from groups like ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and other like-minded groups? Honestly, I'm worried I'm not paying enough attention to it. You're starting to see what we thought would happen You know, as we withdrew, we withdraw from these battlefields. Syria and Iraq, very similar to the the 2010-11 period where organized militant groups are there. Um, With that, my question is, are they focused on the U.S. anymore? You know, as we move back from these battlefields, are they still engaged to to the same degree about provoking attack? And that's where I don't know the answer, and I'm unsure. I'm worried that we're trying to fight so many things on so many fronts simultaneously without a clear plan. You know, Russia and election interference, China and a global state competition, domestic extremist at home. Cyber is its own battle space. We have switched. In 2016, uh, if it was now, I still would have been on maybe television talking about ISIS, you know, and we Mm -hmm. don't even mention it now. Mm -hmm. So I worry that we're slipping a little bit out of that space, but that could be as well just because I'm not paying attention, you know, enough attention personally. But I do have some concerns that I I remember in, in the past two decades that when we take the pressure off these terrorist networks, they do regenerate. My question is, are they still focused on America as much as they were uh, 10 years ago? And that question, I don't have a good answer to. 
So Clint, one last question, and you've been fantastic with your time. What do you think is the greatest national security threat facing the United States? What worries you the most? The lack of unity inside America about what we believe, what we stand for, and what we'll fight for. Honestly, I, you know, it's remarkable. I've been approached a lot over the last few years, and I would love to do it in 2021, which is how does America uh, represent itself and fight in the information space? And the question that I always arrive at is, what do we want to say to the world? And that is not clear. I don't really know. Uh, you know, it was clear to me during the war on terror, we we're going to, you know, protect people, keep them safe. But we we're also going to advance democracy and the principles of, of a free world, open internet, those sorts of things. I can't say that's the case right now. I don't really know what the message is. And I feel like America vis-a-vis China right now, or in Europe with our partners, if we're battling Russia, or if we're going up against international extremists, what would we say to them? What would we offer as a replacement? That's my biggest concern is in 2021, will we know who we are so that we can defend ourselves both at home and abroad? Yeah, I have exactly the same sense that the biggest threat to us at this moment is us. Yeah. I worry a lot about that. Clint, thank you so much for for joining us today. This has been fascinating discussion. I've learned a lot and I'm sure my listeners have learned a lot as well. So thank you for joining us. Michael, thanks for having me. It's, I, I am honored to be on with my one of my heroes from the counterterrorism days. So just for everybody that's listening out there, everybody wanted to be Michael uh, when we were, we were there, young counterterrorism uh, workers. Uh, so ecstatic to be on here today and thanks for this opportunity. You're welcome. It's great to have you. Thanks. Thank you. That was Clint Watts. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Jake Rosen. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morrell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.